This evening, <clears throat> picking up from Sayadaw's last Dhamma talk on delusion and his mention uh, towards the end of the talk about sila, samadhi, and panya being the antidotes to the poison of delusion in the mind. This evening's talk is about samatha or samadhi, wise concentration. And as I think all of you know, concentration plays a very important part in the Buddhist teaching. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's also, as I've mentioned before, it's one of the five controlling faculties, faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, which, when they're fully developed, become the five spiritual powers. The Buddha commented that the practice of vipassana without the support of samatha, without the support of concentration, is like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without having a bodyguard to protect him or her. So we'll begin this evening's discussion with these same three Pali words that Sayadaw closed his talk with, sila, samadhi, and panya. Pali words that translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom, they form the three branches of mental development that are essential to all Buddhist practices. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities, or these first two capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes about through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. That of anicca, the impermanent nature of all mental and physical phenomena. Dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical phenomena. And anatta, the impersonality of all the material and mental phenomena of existence, which are the three profound insights that lead one onto the final liberating wisdom. 
in the Buddha's words, as he often did, he starts with a question and then goes on to answer it. So, in the Buddha's words, this question. If concentration, samadhi, is developed, what profit does it bring? And then he answers his question. The mind is developed. And he asks another. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And his answer is, all greed is abandoned. And he goes on. If insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And his answer is, wisdom is developed. And again, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And his answer, all ignorance is abandoned. And so concentration, samatha meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular alternating sequences, are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes about through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, our exploration of virtue, ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue deepen and as they mature within us, we come to understand through our very own direct experience what brings happiness, contentment and ease on deeper and more and more profound levels and what brings suffering, confusion, what brings dis-ease. Ethical discipline is the basis for developing samadhi. The term samadhi or samatha refers not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of exceptional mental health and balance. intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila affords us is the recognition of and seeing our self-identification in relationship to our habits of attraction, which show up as greed, clinging, expectation and attachment, and our old habits of aversion which show up as worry, resistance, anger, fear, confusion, and doubt. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and that lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly suffering 
which in Pali is called samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deeper and further purifying concentration, samadhi. And these habits of mind keep us from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and thus keep us from awakening, keep us from liberation. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and all physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, Canada, hummingbirds, dogs, thoughts, rain, feelings, one's aging body, New York, sunshine, your favorite restaurant, American Airlines, etc., 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 are understood, are regarded as without being, or being as without being substantial, without any sustaining existence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness, to part the veil, to untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And and this occurs via the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, each of which are rooted in mindfulness and concentration. In speaking to one of his uh, chief disciples, Ananda, in the Kimata Sutta, the Buddha again asks a question and then uh, proceeds to answer it. And he says, What is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And then he responds to his question. Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arhantship.
And in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and experience, the Buddha said this. He said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. (coughs) In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience, and often from some of our most difficult experiences, and sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that purification of the mind and heart is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at this active force of samadhi or samatha, a concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potential powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of Concentration is that of reining the mind in from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that our mental and physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. One important aspect of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over again by whatever breezes waft in upon it from any of the sense doors or from its own unconscious. And in this light, we can ask ourselves this question. Does your mind control you or do you control your mind? So, for instance, if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind wanders off at the very slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. One of the wonderful things that practice offers us is that remaining focused on a chosen object is a skill that can be learned. And like any other skill, by practice, by patient repetition, and by gradual development. 
the Vesudhimagga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, <clears throat> uses a number of very graphic uh, metaphors to describe the process of this development and the act of concentration. And I'd like to share a couple of these with you. The bee follows up on the scent of a flower, then dives toward the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it, getting to know it, we could say, before diving into it, and then absorbing into it. So, a metaphor for preliminary access and absorption concentration. Another metaphor offered in the Vasudhimaga that I particularly relate to because of my own experience in making pottery is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there, with a strong and relaxed focus of attention of mind and body, staying, sustaining attention, sustaining energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with the continued focus of attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and steadily supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. So, quite a graphic and uh, visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, moving into deepening states of concentration. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind concentrated mind. It brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and the effort that's needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention, and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, and calm. Quite an energizing, refreshing, and often beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, concentration, I think it would be helpful for us to 
begin exploring and learning a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. And uh, a quote from the Tibetan Buddhist teacher B. Allen Wallace regarding concentration. Like a telescope launched into orbit beyond the distortions of the Earth's atmosphere, Samatha meditation provides a platform for exploring the deep space of mind. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, cannot grow when unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the sensations of the rising and falling of the breath in the belly, in the abdominal area, and you're anxious, worried, maybe filled with expectation during the process, calm and joy will be prevented from arising. Worry and expectation enslave us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing, and willing is an important word here, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, meaning to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thought, so to say, uh, 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 even thoughts that... uh, seems so very important in the moment. And it's really important here to note that this is not about kicking out thoughts. It's not about booting thoughts out. This booting out thoughts is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. So then aversion is up to the fore in our experience. What is meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or gets lost in something other than what is intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. Why? Because the mind can get lost in myriad, mundane, and seemingly lofty thoughts 
and actions over and over again, thinking that whatever it is, is very important. I personally had such an experience uh, during a three-month retreat that I was involved in practicing in that was devoted to the development of concentration, and in this case the development of jhana, uh, that I sat with the Venerable Pawak Sayadaw a number of years ago for uh, three months, as I mentioned. For the first week uh, of this retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself a very fancy cup of tea, taking two or three loose teas and putting them together in a tea ball. And a, a very important and seemingly very necessary treat that I needed, certainly that I wanted anyway. Towards the end of this week, I noticed that there was a a box of tea sitting on the counter that was one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix of tea. And it had been sitting there uh, all along, but the mind hadn't connected with it with any any degree of clear awareness until that moment. So when I saw it clearly, the thought came, do I really need this? I mean, is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this really important? Well, very quickly the answer came, no. Nope, it's not at all important. It's merely your habitual distraction. So, from that day on, I made a very simple cup of tea with that tea bag and enjoyed it. It was good enough. What happened after that uh, was what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of this three-month retreat, the question would come up in relationship to all kinds of things. Is this really important? And it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. And the answer was almost always, if not after a while, pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. And I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. The development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding, again, the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the mind and heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. Classically, the development of concentration, and for some people, at some point, uh, jhana, is described as the purification of the mind. And again, as the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the 
development of calm and concentration weakens all of the hindrances, weakens all of these unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, blissful happiness, contentment, peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration practice, when they clearly manifest, these unwholesome states of mind are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as fairly considerably weakened in the long term, particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically, if one's mind inclines towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So, taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that hinder the development of concentration and also hinder the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote for feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, the heart, from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the attention, of initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention again and again and again to the object, the word for this is vitaka in Pali, and then with the establishment of the mind on the object, such as the rising and falling sensations in the abdominal area, this eventually temporarily eliminates dullness, sleepiness, and stiffness. The sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustained attention on the object, again such as the breath, and this is vichara in Pali, eventually temporarily eliminates uncertainty and doubt within the practice. And it weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. The deeply mindful and concentrated state of joyful zest, bright happiness, elation in the mind, <clears throat> resulting from the developing purity of mind and heart, and the Pali word is piti, this brings a delighted interest a delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention, such as the breath. And with the development of a deepening concentration, ill will is temporarily eliminated. With the first and second jhana in a deeply absorbed state of concentration, there's much delight and liking of the object of attention which is actually one aspect of the direct experience of the jhana itself. 
and attention at that point is no longer focused on the breath. At this point, all forms of ill will are completely, temporarily inhibited. And the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, sweet, easeful happiness, the Pali word being sukha, which in its maturity is not a pleasant bodily feeling, but it's a blissful, contented mental feeling. When this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, which happens in our vipassana practice, and then much more profoundly in the third jhana, restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are completely, temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the (coughs) steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration, ikagata in Pali, with this occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of concentration and to varying degrees during our insight practice, and then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during absorption in the fourth jhana, This one-pointed focus of attention is the experience of a very clear, strong, and subtly but pervasive energetic centeredness, balance, and equanimity. And during this time, when this is occurring, sensuous desire for anything is inhibited, is at bay, is not at all in one's field of experience. temporarily. As samadhi or concentration develops and moves along and the states that corrupt the natural purity and the natural luminosity of the mind and heart, when at least some of these imperfection, when at least some of these afflictive states of clinging and self-identification have been clearly let go, and at least temporarily abandoned, at least temporarily relinquished. At that time, one really truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience great inspiration and enthusiasm and appreciation connected to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and the taste of a wholesome elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. 
with this joy and the knowing of it, and very important, without any attachment, without any personal identification in those moments, the body and mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, those are removed. They actually disappear with the calm and the quiet of tranquility. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt, and again, very important, without any attachment, without any identification, self-identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non-analytical, sustained, strong and deep, mindful presence. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind, which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on and on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. And so in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or one's ability to deflect the influence of raga, the Pali word that's literally translated as unwholesome passion and often used synonymously with greed, with uh, unwholesome desire, with craving, attachment, and clinging, all of which are the core cause of dukkha, the core cause of our human suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used regarding this uh, particular aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. With the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or an unwholesome emotion that has arisen and uh, uh, will be aware of the uh, of a pro- provocative sense input, any provocative sense input, but will allow these to roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or drench the mind with aversion. A similar image often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or water rolling off the feathers of a duck.
the nature of concentration is threefold. In other words, there are three types or three levels, we could say, of concentration that can develop and serve our insight practice. The first of these is what is called kanaka samadhi in Pali, translated into English as momentary concentration. And this is the development and the growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another, after another, after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another object. One by one by one, and ongoing moment by moment by moment. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice, essential for vipassana practice. The second type, or the second level, we could say, of concentration is called upachara samadhi, or access concentration, or sometimes called neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption, just before one moves into jhana concentration. And it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of absorption, coming out of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and the depth of jhana concentration, but it's not an absorbed concentration, meaning it doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. With upachara, with access or neighborhood concentration, the mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So, from this perspective, access concentration can be a very helpful and useful uh, capacity in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of other objects. And when the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. With the attainment of the first four jhanas, the mind is totally, temporarily purified of the specific wholesome mind states in relationship to each of the jhanas, while at the same time, unwholesome states of mind are actually considerably weakened in the long run, though they're not totally, not finally eliminated. It's only through vipassana, it's only through insight practice that wholesome uh, or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally, and does naturally, uh, take place in our vipassana, in our insight practice, particularly kanaka samadhi, particularly momentary concentration. 
specifically when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, attachment and identification and aversion, but with rather, rather with an interested, open-hearted, open-minded, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration actually takes uh, quite a specific and concerted effort that's not everyone's inclination nor everyone's interest. Sometimes it's interest but not inclination. And it's not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana insight practice to unfold. The achievement of jhana concentration may require many months or a number of years uh, of single-pointed practice, meditating for many, many hours each day. And this can certainly be impractical for some people. For others, it might be possible and it might be worthwhile in moving towards the discoveries that lie and wait for us when we apply the telescope of samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self or not self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place, but with no pondering, no commentary, and no thinking about what is occurring and not making something out of experience. And that's a very important part not making something out of experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. In this light, I'd like to share uh, a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme, austere practices and uh, uh, finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart, uh, the liberation of mind that he was seeking, it's said that the Bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama, uh, asked himself, well, could there be another path to enlightenment? And in reflection with this inner questioning, an image the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when all the men in the community, rich and poor alike, would come together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, quite spontaneously and naturally, sat up in the meditation posture, 
comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene unfolding before him with the very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In these moments of not wanting and not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He felt the plodding rhythm and of the oxen's hoofs and the cowbells rolling on and on amidst the sharp, strong shouts of the men as they worked. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs and the worms and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring and devouring, struggling, suffering and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, joy and beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's mind and heart as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the sweet-smelling rose apple tree open-heartedly experiencing this scene before him and in his mind and heart finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add and nothing to take away. As he silently sat, quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states of mind, and taking all of this in without prejudice and without attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration, the first jhana, through mindfulness of breathing, experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure, a joyful happiness, that was not born out of desire for, not born out of clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha. Could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and assurance that, in fact, this was a footstep on the path, a footstep on the path to liberation. And he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha-to-be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment, 
This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared or to be banished by the practice of extreme austerity. And at that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, banished, released, or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them, or by trying to live through them by stealing, by hardening oneself, and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships. Or by struggling, really trying very, very hard to let go of the painful states uh, of mind related to extreme austere practices. Or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental, various mental fantasies, various situations, activities, various relationships that created hardship, or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life, or maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. So, in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did, and thinking just as he did, that these situations, these mental fantasies, these activities, these relationships would somehow, somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness, and ease into your life. Potentially, a certain degree of mental strength might be gained, but the light at the end of the tunnel, the light of liberation, can never be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities that this actually would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, with a heart, that is secluded, free from mental, the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt, 
He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated, and mindful presence, and very important, detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of mind and heart of a liberated being, an awakened being. In remembering his childhood experience, the bodhisattva came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and for him, jhana, is a footstep on the path to awakening, an important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. As the Buddha expressed in the Majjhima in his discourse to his student Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl, and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under a Bodhi tree. And he goes on, uh, speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and from unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, and in the Buddha's words, but such pleasant feelings that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. Very important. Did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning attained to equanimity, he tells Sakaka that he systematically then attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that, through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, purified mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising, changing, passing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or run from. And yet, this natural state 
of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind made up and often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good or what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know isn't true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up, a mind that in fact clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in, keeping us in conflict, keeping us shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the mind, the heart, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. As I mentioned uh, earlier in this discussion, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical, virtuous conduct. The current of samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration. And the current of panya, the teaching and practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life to the other side, to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed mind and heart. The current of samatha, samadhi, the development of concentration, possibly, maybe, including states of the deeply absorbed concentration of jhana, are beautiful, healing, and powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, It's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. So, as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years 
later, after the story that I've uh, just shared about the Buddha's life, uh, took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and powerful six years of practice, here we are, exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and very amazing gift of clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with a very deep kindness and patience. Each and all of these wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And without a doubt are some of the most basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. In closing the talk this evening with uh, a poem by Mary Oliver that speaks to this evening's uh, topic in her, her quite unique and beautiful way and in relationship to this evening's topic in a somewhat oblique and yet very moving way. And the title of this poem is Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness. And that's when it happened, when I seemed to float to be myself a wing or a tree. And I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands and the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure. But it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away.
And let's sit quietly for just a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.